LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Chris Johnston who joins us to discuss his recent book, Active Hope. How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. Co-authored with Joanna Macy, Active Hope is about finding and offering our best response to the crisis of sustainability unfolding in our world. It starts by accepting that the challenges we face can be difficult even to look at. Climate change, the depletion of oil, economic collapse and the dieback of our natural world act together to create a planetary emergency of overwhelming proportions. Active Hope offers an approach that strengthens our capacity to face disturbing information and respond with unexpected resilience and creative power. Hello and welcome Chris Johnstone and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Pleasure Greg, Um, good to talk with you. Uh, Now we're here today to discuss um, your relatively new book that you have co-authored and it's called Active Hope. Um, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy, Uh, fairly self-explanatory title. Uh, But perhaps before we dive into that, perhaps you could give uh, the listeners some background of uh, uh, you and your work and the journey that you've been on that's brought you to the the work that you do today and how the the book came about. Yes, certainly. Well, my background, I trained as a medical doctor and psychologist and worked for nearly 20 years in the UK health service as an addiction specialist and my core interest and has been really for decades is the psychology of change and particularly what helps us rise to the occasion when we're facing challenges and I've worked for more than 20 years with Joanna Macy, an American writer, workshop leader and activist who's now in her 80s and Joanna over 30 years ago in the late 1970s she developed an empowerment approach that's called the work that reconnects and the goal of this is really to help enliven and empower responses to the global crisis we face and she's been a really big influence on me and what I've been delighted about and feel a sense of privilege around really is that I've worked very closely with her over the four years that we worked on producing this book she living in the States and me living in Britain. And we had a a long series of Skype conversations. We actually had over 100 hours of conversation over Skype. And through that, we wrote this book together. Okay. Now, the book itself, um, I personally picked it up because I'm deeply concerned about the direction that we've been going in um, as a species and what we're doing to the planet. I've probably been like that all my life, to be honest. But uh, things are not getting better, and there's a lot of literature out there warning us um, of a bazillion different things that are out of control and going wrong. 
there's a lot less literature that's offering some light at the end of the tunnel, a way out, a way to deal with things. And Active Hope, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading, by the way, um, is a really useful tool, much needed, I think, uh, in these times to give people the encouragement um, to do something, whatever, however little it is, but just to take steps forward and not just exist in what you in the book call the deadened response uh, to the global crisis, which is a great danger in itself because it causes us to do nothing. And I suppose the message of the book is summed up in the title. It's not just hope, it's active hope. Exactly that, exactly that, that there are different ways of thinking about hope. And one way of thinking about hope is in terms of probability. It's an assessment of the likelihood of things going the way they, the way we want them to do too. So we feel hopeful about a situation if we think it's likely to go well and unhopeful um, if, we, if, if we're less optimistic. And a lot of people look at global issues and don't feel at all optimistic about how things are going. But even more so, the Mental Health Foundation did a big survey of over 2,000 people looking at their emotional responses to global issues. And the commonest response was a sense of powerlessness, that people look at what's going on and and feel like there's nothing I can do, you know, nothing I can do that's really going to make much difference. And when people feel powerless like that, there's a sense of resignation, closing down and closing off to um, to the situation. And so what really Joanna's work has been about and, and, and my work too is when we face disturbing information, when we face information that's depressing to look at, um, rather than weighing up the chances of are we hopeful or are, are we not, the, 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 there's another side of hope, the second side of hope, which is really about what do we hope for? What do we desire? What is it we long for? What is it we hope will happen? And you see that as setting your navigational coordinates. You see that as setting the direction to move in. And then the next question is, what can I do to move that way? So we think of active hope as having three main stages. The first stage is to take in a clear view of reality. So you're just seeing things as they are, both the the, the fantastic, wonderful aspects and also the disturbing ones. And then the second step is just to say, what do I hope for? What? How do I hope things will go? But then also, and then this is the real key, the third part is about being an active participant in the story of helping that to happen. And when we do that, you know, we don't, we have no guarantee that it will all work out well. But what, um, what we can know is that we're putting the full weight of our lives behind the outcome that we prefer will happen. You know, putting the weight of our lives behind our preferred version of the future. Yes, well, people tend to forget that if you choose not to decide, you've still made a choice, and that we do make choices every day, and so some of those are to do nothing. And when you realise that, um, you know, that life isn't certain, it's just uncertainty, that can be quite empowering as well, and you can then start to make choices consciously, um, because either way, as you say in the book, uh, the situation that we're in, we encourage people to look at realistically, it is happening. And, uh, you know, so it's a case of how you face up to it and uh, how you deal with it. Exactly, exactly that. And I, and I think one of the things we write about is that there are different ways of looking at what's going on. And 
and we, we think of them as different stories, different stories we can tell ourselves about how things are on planet Earth at the beginning of the 21st century. And one story is that things are going fine. And really what we need is to get the economy to grow even bigger and to, you know, to get more jobs and higher salaries and economic development. And that is the dominant story amongst um, certainly most world leaders, corporate leaders, uh, it, that, that business as usual story. And, and, and the defining assumption is that we don't really need to change the way we're going. We just kind of need more of the same and to do it better and faster. And, and, and that's what's leading to, it's basically leading us over the edge of a cliff. Uh, this idea that we need to have economic growth where the more we grow, the more resources we consume and the more waste we produce without really looking at, well, what are the limits to that? You know, that basically we're entering an age where we're already, part, most of the, the cheaper, more available oil has already been used up. And what we're left with is the oil that's difficult to get hold of that might be miles beneath the, the ocean surface or um, in, in or poorer quality oil like the tar sands in in Canada, and um, so, and, and that there's plenty of other resources that we're we're coming to to the limits of. But also, just the more we grow, the more waste we produce. And I think that the the amount of waste produced, for example, in North America each year, um, would produce a equivalent to a rows of of um, rubbish trucks going round the world several times. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding the amount of rubbish that we produce. But also, we don't really know what to do with it. We're creating so much. So, But as well as the rubbish we can see, there's a rubbish that we can't see in terms of the waste products that we're pumping out into the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide, tons every year for each person, certainly in um, Western Europe and, and North America. And, I mean, it, the idea that we need to grow more in a way that's producing more... Um, more waste products that are, are destabilizing the, um, you know, the, 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 the climate. I mean, it's it's kind of like um, we're just not looking at where we're heading. That that, there's, that that we're increasingly becoming dominated by a very very short term approach to thinking, and certainly when it comes to economic transactions, they're now occurring even in. Um, matters of seconds, this idea of automated trading of, of shares happening, you know, shares can be bought and sold in a matter of seconds, not even by humans, but by um, controlled by computer programs, it, governed by very, very short term um, deci decisions are made on basically what's going to make profit between the morning and the afternoon. I once spoke to somebody who was an economist for one of the major banks in the city of London, and she was in their long-range planning department. And long-range planning for them was looking as far ahead as three months in the future. And how, how can we navigate in a world where the consequences of our decisions can last, you know, not just decades or even hundreds of years, but, for example, with some of the toxins we're producing, they have effects that will still be around even hundreds of millions of years into the future. I mean, it's just a completely different span of time. So if the consequences of our decisions are long term, but we're only looking at the short term consequences for actually making the decisions, what's happening is we're blinding ourselves to the hazards that we're heading into. And I think of it as just like the Titanic, really. The Titanic was, um, <coughs> the problem is it was at too great a speed to slow down 
when it finally saw the hazards that it was crashing into. And we're in real danger of, of operating on a very similar kind of principle, but as our whole human society. Yeah, this short-termism is kind of manifesting itself, not only, you know, in a greater uh, quantity, if you want to put it that way, but it's right across the board now. We've spoken about, you know, uh, financial institutions, corporations, governments, all just thinking about tomorrow or next week or from one election to the next. And, you know, we, we, you look at the negotiations around the world and all different bodies and, you know, some governmental, some non-governmental uh, addressing problems, but they're not really addressing them at all. They're, it's, like, it's like what's going on with the euro right now. They're kicking the can down the road. And you see this all the way down through the different levels of society, right down to individuals. I mean, the, I don't know about you, but the people in my life, friends and family, you know, there's there's not so much planning for the future. People feel uncertain. They realize that things are uncertain. Uh, they stop financial planning because they feel they can't. People are not building for the future. It doesn't mean they're not living their lives and perhaps there's things that they want to do or that they're working towards. But the idea of a, you know, of a, a real coherent vision for the future, they're just preferring not to think about it and say, oh, let's just get through this month. Let's just get to Christmas. Let's just get to the summer and see what, what things are like when we get there. And I think how very different, I'm just thinking of the Haudenosaunee, um, our native people from North America, and known very much for their seventh generation question, that when they um, met in council to consider important questions, one of the important issues, one of the questions they'd ask is, how will this decision affect the seventh generation? And I'm, I'm just wondering what would happen if, if we had that change in thinking. And I think this also really um, is linked to our whole view of reality and our view of what we are, that if we see ourselves as separate individuals, then what happens beyond the span of our own lives has less meaning to us. And certainly, I think, uh, parents or grandparents, there is a sense of, the, of, of wanting to consider what's going to happen for the next generation or, or the, you know, the, the generation after that. But exactly as you say, that we, um, there's a kind of narrowing of timescape, the, the, the timescape being the, the boundaries of time that we consider, looking back and looking forward, is, is shrinking. That what seemed to be important is what's just happened, what's happening and what's about to happen without seeing ourselves in a, in a larger landscape of time that goes back, you know, that we are part of a wonderful living Earth that's our, our planet's um, about four and a half billion years old and life on this planet has been around for about three and a half billion years. When we start to think of ourselves as part of a planet, when we start to think of ourselves as part of the living um, living superorganism of life on Earth, we start to enter a very different conception of time. Do you think that, because I, I mean, I've stopped quite some time ago, stopped paying any attention to the mainstream media, but when I do hear um, sort of proclamations from politicians and, and leaders of various types, um, I do wonder, uh, you talk in the book about the social pressure that often keeps us from talking about difficult subjects. I mean, we all know how that works with our personal lives, you know, things we just don't want to talk about sweep under the carpet. But it's true of the global issues that we're facing. And do you believe that the leaders and the great and the good, the people in charge, so to speak, are under the same, you know, a form of that pressure 
Um, obviously, some there appears to be some you know malevolent, malignant agendas at work. But I do wonder when I look at them, do they really have to just get up and lie through their teeth because it will be unacceptable socially to to speak the truth? I think that we have a real difficult situation here. I mean, there's studies looking at speeches of politicians. And the ones who are more likely to win are those who appear to be more optimistic. So if you have somebody who's promising, it will be better under me, it will be rosier under me, that's very attractive to people. They think, oh yeah, that person, they've got confidence, they've got confidence in their vision. But honesty is not rewarded in mainstream politics. And even the idea of changing your mind, you know, that when you become aware of new information and you need to change your mind. And I teach courses on resilience and I see that um, flexibility, flexible flexibility where you're and, and responding to feedback where you can change course when you become aware of new information that shows you're off course. Those are essential for resilience, yet they are basically selected against in mainstream politics. If people are too honest or if they um, own up to changing their mind, they're accused of weakness and of having a U-turn. I think it's one of the key uh, uh, aspects, uh, no guarantee perhaps, but one of the key aspects to like having a long life and to having, you know, continuing to enjoy life right up until the moment it ceases is the ability to take on new information, to absorb it and to, as you say, change course if it's relevant to do so, if it's the right thing to do. And I see a lot of people get fixed ideas about particular things. Nope, this is the way it is. That politician's a good guy. This system, I like it. You know, I voted for it. I bought into this. Uh, whether people have committed money or time or, or just their belief to something, they can be very resistant to that because they identify with their beliefs and then they feel that they're, whether it's a politician, that they're doing a U-turn. If they're an individual, they, they think they're flim-flamming, that people will think that they don't know what they think. Uh, oh, what you know? What do you? What's your opinion on this? And if you change your opinion, then you know your original one was somehow invalid, and your new one is even more invalid. Mm. Yes, yes, and and I think it's something about how we approach um, thinking skills and this idea of um, feedback, being open to feedback. And I, I'm very sensitive to this because I spent so many years working as an addiction specialist. Where one of the real problems is is where somebody. Um, has difficulty facing what's going on and alcohol, particularly I work with people with alcohol problems, is, is often used as a way of blotting out what's difficult. And so what you have is you get a vicious cycle where um, there's a situation that's difficult. It's like, oh my God, I can't face this. I want to have a drink. So you have a drink and you blot it out and the problem goes in the short term, but it comes back with interest. So you have another drink, you blot it out, the problem goes but it comes back with interest. And that same vicious spiral is, 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 um, can be seen to happen at lots of different levels, including in organisations. And there's lots being written about some of the financial organisations that close down to feedback, that even though they had very clear signals that they were heading the wrong way, that um, there, there were things that happening that were really needed to be addressed, there was a sort of group culture where it was unacceptable to rock the boat by naming what was going on, that kind of groupthink and, and kind of closing down to feedback. And what happened is, this, is the organisation just went more and more and more off course, that something that could have been nipped in the bud at an earlier stage just wasn't dealt with and just grew completely out of control. 
And I see that happening on a larger societal basis as well, that many of the issues we face, if we really put our minds and hearts to addressing them, I'm, we certainly could. But what's happening is that the idea of addressing them is seen to be um, too much of a cost. It's seen to be too much of a loss. It's seen to be um, an uncomfortable, unpopular and even the idea of political suicide, the idea that if a, if a politician is too open about the problems we face, they'll be seen as somehow unelectable. And I think this, this is that we are trapping ourselves into... Is it, it becomes a situation where the worse things get, the more difficult they become to face. But the more difficult they become to face, um, the, um, the more we close off to them, then the worse that they will get. Well, we do have a culture of shooting the messenger, don't we? And uh, we see that with um, with whistleblowers. Um, I don't have a strong opinion either way about someone like Julian Assange because I don't feel that I have the facts. You know, I don't believe anything. I either know it or I don't know it. And I don't know <laughs> in his case. But however, we see that people who do go out on a limb uh, to make a difference, um, if you can't ridicule them, then quite often they're they're taken out, you know, physically or metaphorically. Absolutely, yes. And I had the experience of that myself. I worked in the health service as a junior doctor years ago and there was a culture of um, doctors working, junior doctors working crazy hours. I mean, I would sometimes work well over 100 hours in a week. Sometimes I think I worked 135 hours in, in a week. But the idea that your future jobs depended on your references from your employers and if you spoke out, you would become unemployable. And... Um, I remember that I was um, asked to be interviewed by a, a TV news team and um, because it was on the hospital, outside the hospital, the managers of the hospital were told. And I got phoned at home the evening before the interview by one of the hospital managers and told that if I went ahead with this interview, I would need to watch out for my future. Yeah, quite, it's quite very insidious. But um, to put things on a positive spin, which is uh, ultimately what we're about uh, today, um, you do, uh, quite early on in the book, uh, address um, the fear that we all have at such, some level that we're not up to the task, that, uh, you know, even though the large organisations, uh, you know, and governments are manifestly failing and quite often are the cause of the problems, we still want to leave it to them, in quotes, to sort out, and uh, there's a really good section in the book, and basically to say that you know it's not just little me, that actually we're all part of something much bigger, sort of like cells in a body that we're you know we're part of a system here, and that one person can make a difference, and that when you start to to do something, then uh, sort of serendipity and synchronicity starts to come into play, and things can really begin to move. Yes, it's a very different story. And, and I think of it as a story of being plugged in, you know, being plugged into life. And um, I, I'm very interested in new approaches in science, this idea, particularly in holistic science, that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. And we can all see this happening in our lives, that a cell is more than just a pile of molecules, an organ is more than just a pile of cells. And people are so much more than just piles of organs, you know, that there's amazing things that happen in people that don't happen with just disconnected separate organs. And one of my frustrations training as a doctor is that we were taught a, a reductionist approach. The reductionism is that you understand something just by looking at its tiny pieces. And, and that view of reality is so current in 
mainstream education, this idea that you have a different department in a university to study each different little bit of the earth. Whereas the idea of holistic um, science is that you look at things as a whole. And when you look at uh, a whole person, you see that they have abilities that you don't just see in the parts themselves. So, for example, a whole person has self-healing potential that we have a wonderful immune system, we have an ability to resist infection. And when you work with a person as a whole, you can, rather than just focusing on the, the sickness and the things that are going wrong, you can also work with somebody to strengthen their body's ability, their, 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 their whole person's ability to um, resist illness. Now, that same idea that the whole is more than the sum of the parts, you can apply to the whole of the planet. And a new approach in science, Gaia theory, looks at how all of life acts with its environment to maintain its own balance. And the research for this and evidence behind this is, is pretty compelling. Um, just something for example as when you take a breath in, we just take for granted what's there. But so the, the atmospheres, atmospheres on, on Mars and Venus are very, very different. And the reason they're different is because they don't have life on those planets. Um, on, on Earth, we have over 20% oxygen, which basically we wouldn't have over 20% oxygen if there wasn't life playing a role in maintaining the atmosphere. Oxygen is a highly reactive chemical. It would be used up in um, fires and things like that. It, you know, to actually have this high level is, is a product of the complexity and amazingness of life. And, and we take all of that for granted. Now, this idea of holistic science, when we really get the idea that just as our bodies have a self-healing potential, so also you can see forests, for example, have an ability to grow back after fires, that um, many ecosystems can restore themselves after trauma. And the Earth itself, there have been a number of um, mass extinction events in the past where life has recovered from afterwards. Now, what would it be like if we were to see ourselves as part of the self-healing potential of the planet? That if we were to see ourselves like cells within a larger body, that just as white cells within your body can play a role in fighting disease, so maybe we could be... It's something about being in alignment, being moving in the same direction as the ability of the planet to heal itself. And there's some very interesting things happen here about power because it's a, it's a very different model of power. It's not like I control something or I make something happen. It's more about how do we, um, how do we allow larger currents to, of, of life, life energy to act through us. And th th this is really a more spirit, it's where science and spirituality start to talk in a similar language, really. Um, I, I don't know how this is sounding to you, Greg, this idea that just as a body can um, act as a larger whole, that it's not just like so many different separate pieces, that acting together it can keep itself in balance, that the idea the whole earth can keep itself in balance. And what's been happening with humanity over the last, certainly, um, 50 to 100 years is that we've been going in the wrong direction. We've been pushing against the planet's balance, um, balancing kind of mechanisms. But we could change. We could say, I want to go in the same direction as the rest of life. I want to play a part in protecting life. I want to be aligned with the desire of life to continue. Yes, it's like um, <clears throat> they made themselves gods and now God has forsaken us, as they say in, in King Arthur. But um, 
You have a chapter in the book, uh, a couple actually in particular, that the titles are very intriguing. And uh, chapter three, for example, is called Coming from Gratitude. Uh, chapter four is Honoring Our Pain for the World. And these are ones that I dived into almost straight away because the, the titles were intriguing. And they're about, um, Coming from Gratitude really is about a different way of, of, of thinking. Um, you've, some of the subtitles uh, in the chapter promoting well-being uh, and increasing trust and generosity and as an antidote to consumerism. Uh, so perhaps we just say something about that chapter. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, what um, the, the empowerment approach that Joanna Macy developed in the late 1970s and the way it's evolved since then involves the, this idea that we can um, we can take a journey round a spiral of four different areas and we can do this just even over a few minutes or we can do it over a weekend workshop or we can do it over a period of months. But moving through these four areas is strengthening in a way that resources ourselves to better respond to um, global crisis. And, and the first part of that spiral is gratitude. The idea that gratitude is, is one of the most amazing forces in the universe. It's something that we can switch on in an instant. We can just, in terms of the questions that we ask ourselves or what we give attention to, um, for, there's these two sides of gratitude. One is appreciation, so that's what we're grateful for. And the other is about... Uh, the people or entities who played a role, who we're grateful to. So there's what we're grateful for, who we're grateful to. And, and when we think about those, gratitude, it points our attention outwards beyond ourselves to those that we receive from. And that, that that's incredibly strengthening, that it's almost like the opposite of paranoia in a way. You know, paranoia is the feeling of the world being against you. But when you spend time giving attention to gratitude, you become aware of how much we receive from the world around us. And some cultures, I mentioned North American Indian cultures, they, they really build thanksgiving and gratitude into their whole way of life. You know, they have long thanksgiving ceremonies that um, it's not just like one Thanksgiving day a year, but it's something that they will spend, give a lot of time and attention to because they see it as essential for survival. They see gratitude as really like the starting point that if you're grateful for what supports you to live, then you don't mess it around. You know, that if, if we really see how much we depend on the rest of life and we felt gratitude towards the rest of life, we wouldn't ravage it. We wouldn't destroy it in the way that we are. Now, you mentioned the Native Americans there, and they also um, get a mention in the section honouring our pain for the world, because we have uh, visions in our mind of indigenous people as being, you know, as they generally are, much more in touch with um, their connection to nature, all of nature, you know, the seasons, time, long stretches of time, you know, behind them and in front of them, and uh, what they do affects everything. Um, and... So perhaps you could explain um, um, the idea. I think I should say the idea that we, for example, living in the uh, in the rich industrialized West, don't have that within us is false. We do feel it if we allow ourselves to feel it. We are distressed if we can face it. Uh, so in that sense, we're no different than any other human beings on the planet. But we've become so detached from the you know the rest of existence basically and in your section honoring our pain for the world i mean there's an, an expression in there working with our despair and this kind of does what it says on the tin it's a way to face this and allow ourselves to feel what what is there yes yes i, I find very helpful the idea that we feel what we feel 
but we have choices about how we respond to how we feel. And that within Western culture as a whole, there's a common idea that some feelings are basically bad and unwelcome and taboo. And they're seen as negative feelings. And this idea that basically if people feel them, they should hide them away. And so if we watch the news and we feel sad or we feel guilty or we feel angry, that that those feelings are unwelcome, that they're not things that we're encouraged to talk about. And so they get stuffed to the back of our minds and the bottom of our hearts. And this idea of honouring our pain for the world is is this idea that our feelings have value. They, they, They carry signals that tell us, that carry important information. So... For example, you know, if you put your finger over a flame, it hurts. That pain alerts you to danger and, and you respond to that pain by pulling it away. If we were to anneath ourselves to pain, and this happens medically sometimes with um, there's something called charcoal joint, where people lose pain sensation in their joints and they can't feel when their joints are stretched too far and they end up damaging their joints, sometimes beyond repair. And something similar is happening in our world it's like we're not feeling the pain of our world being stretched too far and because of that we continue stretching and we overstress and we overstress in a way where we destroy whole environments um this idea of feeling honoring our pain for the world when you honor something you hold it in high regard you value it you 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 welcome it um and so for example, if you watch disturbing news and you feel upset, angry, guilty, despairing, rather than brush those feelings away or hide them away or you know pretend to be kind of spray on happiness, whatever it is, you just feel what you feel and also make room for it. But there's also you're telling yourself a different story about that pain and this idea of feedback. Feedback is, is when you pay attention to signals that tell you whether you're on course or off course. And we feel pain about situations when they're off course in some way. So, you know, we are off course as a species. And if we listen to the signals that tell us we're off course and respond to those, then that helps us get back on course. And and so that's really honouring our pain for the world is saying that our, our pain for the world, when we, when we feel upset, when we feel distressed for something beyond our personal selves, that that's a signal, first of all, that we're plugged in, second, that we care, but also it's a signal that there's a situation going on that requires our response. Now, cutting-edge science is telling us um, what certain you know, peoples of the world have known forever, and that's basically that the, the model that sort of governs our society, which is basically one of selfishness, uh, survival of the fittest, everyone will be familiar with how that works or doesn't work. Uh, this is in fact not natural and that we're basically cooperative beings and we certainly get a lot more done when we cooperate. And that's not about um, everyone merging like the Borg <laughs> and becoming the same, but it's about the individuals, as we all are, the individual can be celebrated but that cooperation is the key. Yes, it's really interesting here because Darwin himself wrote about the survival value of feelings, about when we feel for each other, it bonds us together and that's given a survival advantage. You know, one saber-toothed tiger tiger versus one human, um, certainly in kind of primitive past, the saber-toothed tiger would have won, but they became extinct 
and what the what helped humans survive was our cooperativeness the fact that we feel for each other we feel with each other that when someone else has distress we can feel distress for them um that that distress acts through us and, and so when we feel for for people for aspects of our world beyond ourselves it's that that has been part of what's helped us survive and it's really interesting here around use of words because rather than survival of the fittest it's actually survival of those that fit best together um and fit best together with their environment as well i think this is one of the real keys that to have an in- individual organism surviving while its environment is destroyed makes no sense biologically at all and it's it it, it wouldn't continue that that organisms that survive are those that work with their environment particularly if they can play a role where they're giving benefits um around that you get a a a a basis of mutual aid and there's lots and lots of examples of that um in 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 nature but also a lot of very very interesting work that's been done around the idea of group um survival rather than individual survival and particularly now we live in an interconnected world where basically we we're, we're all on this planet together and the idea of having a divided world where the rich and privileged will somehow be okay you know basically if we wreck the planet no one's going to be okay there's a phrase in the book which i really liked and uh obviously the meaning of it is uh, profound i might be paraphrasing here but it was like that our sense of self then defines what self interest is and if we are out for ourselves or just those close to us get ahead trample somebody else down to to move forward then we're we're going that's going to be our self interest we will take certain course of action to achieve that but if we can redefine and get this wider sense of self then suddenly it doesn't seem like such a good idea to basically to trash the planet systematically yes and this idea of the difference between a narrow self on the one hand and a wide self on another i mean it's actually within everyone's experience that even within families it's quite common for parents to make enormous sacrifices for their children and if if you're thinking just purely in terms of selfishness that wouldn't make sense and some people might say well it's all about the selfish gene but um people will help people who aren't biologically related to them you know adoptive parents play an enormous um role that it's not just about genes it it's there's a, a key part of our being is about connectedness and belonging and it's out of connectedness and belonging that we get a sense of purpose in life and so what we write about in that chapter a wider sense of self is the idea that there's a separate self which is just about me but there's also a connected self which is about the larger we and that that exists on lots of different levels so there's a connected self and we're connected as part of a family connected self and we're part of a community and you can think of it as um larger and larger concentric circles that we we are part of larger circles and when we feel a strong sense of belonging just as you have it with a team when you feel a strong sense of connection with a team you get team spirit and when there's a strong feeling of team spirit in a team that whole team tends to thrive it tends to be a much more enjoyable place to be people both give and receive support much more readily and so what what we look at with that idea of a wider sense of self is how would it be to widen ourselves so much that we feel part of the team of life on earth you know if we look at all of life as some huge organ organization um part of a team that we belong to 
And what happens is when you take that view, you have a very different relationship with the rest of life, that you tend to experience support, belonging and a sense of purpose that really brings us much more to life. What do you make of the, I know you touch upon this in the book, and the emergence of a connected consciousness, I believe you call it, that the idea, and there's a lot being talked and written about this, that, that, that a global consciousness, uh, human consciousness is emerging, um, coalescing, and that globalization itself, the, you know, of, of uh, communications technology in particular is actually accelerating this, and, um, and whether this can be, you know, is, is a positive change, and whether it's in time, to make a positive difference. Yes, well, I, I think all of this whole area is um, what, what really brings me, I suppose, a, a lot of optimism because there's something here about whenever parts come together as a larger whole, you can never predict what new properties that larger whole will have. So you can look at a whole row of atoms and a whole row of molecules and that gives you no idea at all of what will happen when those atoms and molecules are bound together as a larger cell. You know, basically, cells have abilities that you just can't predict from looking at the individual atoms and molecules. And in a similar way, when you look at um, biological systems, that what can happen in a, an ecosystem is more than you could predict from just looking at the individual species. But when you look at the whole of life on Earth, there's, what we're looking at here is a term emergence. Emergence is where something new happens as a result of interaction of parts. And we, we, we can't predict what will happen if we get to the point where, rather than just being so many separate individual humans, that we were to start thinking of ourselves as part of something larger and acting in that more coordinated way. And I'm very interested in a whole approach within science called distributed intelligence and the distributed intelligence is 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 where it's not like one part is super brainy and controls everyone else but it's where lots of smaller parts acting sometimes on quite simple rules or quite simple principles that they there's there's a higher level of intelligence that emerges out of that and i've spent decades as a group therapist really and one of the things i'm very aware of in groups is that that there's there's something that you can feel happening in groups when there's a a development from just a room full of separate individuals to the feeling of community that happens when a group bonds together, and it's it's what has incredible healing powers. I, I you know really struck by how I've seen people change and how I've experienced being changed myself. Um, as a result of powerful experiences in groups. Now, that's just on a very small scale, where uh, the, the life of a group, the potential of a group, is more than you can predict from knowing everything about every individual within the group. Uh, some of this becomes difficult to um, explain, but there, there's a term I use called level shift, and, and it's a bit like, if you were just to look at an individual brain cell, that would give you no measure at all of the intelligence of a brain. And thinking, thinking is something that doesn't happen in individual brain cells by themselves. Thinking is, happens on a higher level. Thinking is an emergent property. It happens through the brain cells rather than in the brain cells. And if we were to think, what would happen if our planet could think? What would happen if our planet could feel? It would be something that happens through its parts, just as the way a group acts through its members. 
A society acts through its members. Our whole planet is acting through its different parts, and we're part of our planet. But the key here is that we also have choice. We also have choice about what potential we bring out inside ourselves. And really, I, I see this is the defining moment of the 21st century. We're at a crossroads as a species, and we can choose to go down the route of getting the best we can for ourselves. And I think what will happen is, it, as we do that, we will just gobble up all the resources and we will just fight over what remains. Or we can choose a different route. We can say, here we are, we're at a crisis point, and crisis can become a turning point. And particularly if we wake up to this idea that we're not just separate bundles of selfishness just chasing after our own glory, but we can see that we are part of, belonging to, connected with, um, a most amazing um, entity of of life on earth and we're only just beginning to kind of discover quite what that can mean for ourselves but when we live the life of a connected part of belonging to something larger it takes our our life in a whole new direction and that's what we try to describe in in um, find your power the middle section of the book we call seeing with new eyes it's about living a new story and the work that reconnects is really about empowerment through plugging in and what I mean by plugging in, I think of it as of, of connecting with our root system. You know, a tree with no roots just gets blown down really quickly. But if we can experience our rootedness within the larger life of which we're part, it energises us, it nourishes us, and it resources us in a way that so much more becomes possible. Well, it, um, a narrow view of time that we referred to earlier, <clears throat> as you say in the book, it diminishes meaning and purpose. And those are the those are the things, the two things that will actually make life worth living because that's what people are looking for. You know, they're looking for meaning, like what's this for, purpose, what do I do? And there's a lot of people who are not living their true purpose who don't know what it is and probably never ask themselves and maybe never will. But that wider view of time, then an individual human life becomes very important but very important in the grand scheme of things. It's not the be-all and end-all. And this is what the indigenous people understand that you know that what came before and what came after that we're part of that cycle and and it is up to us to live like we are and not just as this a little blip here where we just uh, chase the you know worldly pleasures and then we check out. Yes, and it's seeing ourselves. We're the connecting point. We're the connecting point between the past and the future, and what we do shapes what kind of future happens. So that's 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 a great responsibility, really. It's like. But, but, but it, you know, we don't control the whole thing, but what we do do is we vote. We vote for the kind of future we leave behind. And it's really about, do we leave a curse on the planet or do we leave a positive legacy? And the closest parallel I see to this, uh, I don't know whether, Greg, you've seen the film Avatar, um, but we, res we wrote about Avatar in the beginning of chapter five on, on when we talk about self, because the view of the Na'vi, the... the, the, the species in avatar the blue skin tall species that they think of themselves feel of themselves as as part of the planet they belong to it's like they have a, an intimate relationship with the whole world around them they see themselves as kind of like caretakers belonging to they take what they need but there's a there's a feeling of love of affection of real relatedness to the world around them and i was so struck by in that film how the main character of, um, you know, the main character, he, um, 
he 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 changed. He changed through the film, and he changed in his view of himself. That he began the film, kind of you know, in his own kind of little world, and feeling kind of limited in a way. But he he the change in the main character of the film is kind of similar to the change that can happen in ourselves from seeing ourselves as separate without really much meaning or purpose or direction in life to feeling this huge sense of um that you know that we are born at a crucial point in in history where we can play a role in um the kind of direction that 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 human life moves in now, at this stage, you touch upon something in the book, which is actually a very good example of people coming together and making things happen, and making things happen with an eye to the future and the sort of future that they want to have, and the sort of future that we're going to get and going to have to deal with, and that's the transition networks. Uh, people may or may not have heard of transition towns. There's, um, I don't know how many there are in the UK, actually. I don't even know if they exist elsewhere. I've only begun to look into it. But without perhaps spending a long time talking about what the transition networks are, are actually doing. Um, I mean, that's, it's worth mentioning just as an example of action being taken, positive proactive change occurring. Absolutely. I, I see the transition movement as one of the most inspiring examples of, of, of what I think of as the great turning. The great turning is that larger story of noticing what's going wrong in our world and becoming part of the larger turning towards recovery and I, I love this term recovery the recovery isn't just in an individual level but it also happens in communities and society as a whole and what the re transition movement is really around is, is, is resilience really resilience is saying that we're facing shocks and one of the shocks that we're going to be facing increasingly over the next few decades is that we're running out of oil that we're past uh, we're moving past the point where um the kind of the the maximum oil production and just as already in the North Sea and in North America and other parts of the world, um, the, the, the peak of oil production happened some years ago. I think it was about 1999 for North Sea and there's been less oil being pumped out of the North Sea each year since then. It's in decline. When we get to the point where our global oil reserves as a whole are in, in, in decline and we're getting less oil each year, that's going to push the price of oil up and the whole economy is so dependent on oil that that's going to cause a slowing down of the economy in a way that the recession that we're experiencing at the moment is really just the, the beginning, really, that there's going to be a um, contraction of our, our global economies. It's this idea, you know, this is a situation we could easily be facing in, in the coming years and, and decades. And resilience is about, well, how do we have communities that can still continue to flourish even um, through those shocks. And it's not just the shock of um, um, oil prices g going up, but it'll also be um, all of the kind of economic shocks that are very much here already with kind of rising unemployment and also the shocks of, of climate change too. So how do we become resilient as communities? And one of the ways that we do that is by acting together as communities, by looking at questions like, well, when oil is is three times as expensive as it is now and that's not such an unlikely thing to happen in the next you know in the coming years how are we going to afford to get our food you know and so much of food is transported sometimes thousands of miles we won't be able to sustain that 
Um, so this idea that they actually use um, the idea of energy vulnerability audits, where you look at, well, how is this community going to survive when, you know, the price of, price of oil goes up 30%, 50%, 100%? What can we do? Where, how will our education system function? How will our transport system function? And by looking at those questions now, we can actually design in and develop systems of doing things that will be able to keep going even when a lot of the conventional structures that we rely on now start to fall down. Yes, I think and I hope that people um, will look at the, if they haven't already, you know, look at the transition town movement and perhaps feel inspired by it to do something similar or something else constructive. And you do stress in the book, um, in the section going forth, that it's important to have an inspiring vision for the future because if all we see is bleakness and blackness, well, we're going to find it very difficult to be motivated to act. And it's not, you know, envisioning a future that we might want and just saying, oh, well, that's fairyland, it can't be done. The other side of that coin is, well, if you don't have a shape for something, how can you build it? Yes, and this idea of dismissing things as just fairy tales, um, we have a chapter called Daring to Believe It's Possible. And one of the things we look at there is just that there's so many things that we take for granted now as just normal aspects of our life that were dismissed as fairy tales in the past. I mean, I remember, for example, Margaret Thatcher, when she was Prime Minister, saying that um, anyone who thinks the ANC, the African National Congress, can run, you know, be in charge of South Africa is in cloud cuckoo land. And that was a point when the ANC was basically a a banned organisation in South Africa and Nelson Mandela was in prison. Yet, you know, we all know now that Nelson Mandela, he's, he's kind of basically respected as one of the most important statespeople of you know the last hundred years he's had an enormous effect on on the world he became president of south africa now that wouldn't have been seen to be possible earlier in time and there's lots of examples of that women getting the vote in many countries of the world there was a time when that wasn't seen to be at all likely the idea of somebody from African-American background becoming president of the United States. You know, a lot of these things would be seen to be in cloud cuckoo land. And so when we get told and we have an idea, oh, that's never going to happen, that's just dreaming, you know, it's possible that that's true. But it's also possible that um, it it can happen. We don't know what's possible. So if we don't know what's possible, then what's important is what's desirable. What, what do we want to happen? And how do we become part of the story of making that more likely? And there's two, towards the end of the book, um, there's two uh, sort of little themes that uh, on the face of it seem negative, but you actually show how underlying them is actually a positive. Uh, one is the idea of uncertainty. And the other is something you call discontinuous change. And that would basically mean that things can be plodding along and then suddenly, seemingly without warning, can can radically change. And people would normally think of negative examples of that, you know, financial crash, for example. Um, But when you consider then that, that you know, we're always looking for certainty in our lives, but actually that's an illusion because all there is is uncertainty. There's that expression, you know, that the only things that are certain is death and taxes. So when you Mm. understand that all is uncertainty, and that discontinuous change can also mean something suddenly changing for the better. You know, a critical mass of people seeing or believing or doing something, and then suddenly overnight things change for the better. When you take that on board, it's a different way of looking at things that can be quite empowering. 
Yes, and, and other terms for discontinuous change is a, is a breakthrough. You know, before a breakthrough happens, something can seem impossible. And yet when you have a breakthrough, there's like a sudden moving through to a whole new realm or another term is a quantum shift. And, and I, I see this a lot happening on um, with individual change in addictions recovery that somebody might have been stuck for years and years in a belief that, oh, I'll never, I'll never make it, you know, I'm just one of those people it's not going to happen for, or, you know, I'm, I haven't got enough willpower, or whatever the story is. And yet situations can change where people can end up doing something, finding a new way forward, where, like, all of a sudden something becomes possible. And I, I, I lose count of the number of people I've worked with who were dismissed as hopeless cases but then who found stable long-term recovery after a period of breakthrough. And when I, I run groups on resilience and empowerment, a question I often ask is, how many people in the room can do something now that some years ago you thought, oh, I can never do that, that's just not possible for me? And every time I've asked that question, hands always go up. There's always someone in the room who says, yeah, you know, that's true for me. And a whole variety of different situations, it might be, I was somebody who used to smoke and I thought I'd never be able to give up. You know, I tried 25 times and every time I tried, I, I failed. Um, and I just thought I'm just one of those people who will never make it. And then something happened. Something happened. It's like maybe a series of things happened or I found a new way and I had a breakthrough. And now I haven't smoked for the last 10 years. Um, or it might be learning to swim or learning to drive or whatever, whatever it is. So that's common human experience that we can... Um, have the sense that something can't be done and we can be absolutely certain of that but then situations can change and if we're aware of that process if we were aware that our when, when we say something's impossible that's an assessment made at a particular point in time based on what we know in that time and that assessment of whether something's possible or impossible can change as we become aware of new information or as we develop new capacities well, just to begin to round things up, I have to say that I'm not a, a believer in uh, mindless optimism any more than I am in hopeless pessimism. Uh, both, actually, if you think about it, are rooted in certainty or a, a need for certainty. But if even if things are as bad as the you know the worst uh, doom mongers say, I would say if you had a hundred to one chance of personal survival, would you take it? So if someone said, "Here's a hundred boxes." Inside one of them is the key to your survival. You can choose a box or you cannot choose a box. If you don't choose a box, you die. You choose a box, you know, 100 to 1, one of them's got the key. Of course you would take it. You wouldn't say, oh, well, it's 100 to 1. It's a bit unlikely that, you know, that it's quite an uphill road. We face a lot of challenges. I think I'll just sit at home. Hmm. And I think what's even more than that, I'm very interested in the psychology of happiness and it's something I've done a lot of work around. And one of the ways to have a much more satisfying life is when you're engaged in a process um, that kind of fully absorbs your attention, but also if what you're absorbed in has, has meaning for you. And so I'd say if you get really interested in looking in boxes, you know, then you, you wouldn't get and, and you find a way of dealing with failure where you, you think of each unsuccessful attempt is just another step on the way so it's not like oh I've looked in one box and it wasn't there so what's the point or I've looked in five boxes it wasn't there what's the point you just recognize that the the way to find a way forward is to be involved in the quest of looking 
And if you're involved in the quest of looking for a way, then your life becomes an adventure. And something about making our lives adventures, actually, it, it enlivens us. And adventures, the really best adventures, they're, they're not solo missions. They're, they tend to be a merry gang and you tend to have a group of people, whether it's, you know, Harry Potter with Ron and Hermione or Frodo and the Fellowship of the Ring. We can create those groups around us and that when we do have a sense of fellowship, that there are others who are joined with us in a similar direction, um, then the whole process of working for change becomes much more satisfying. And what, what one of our last chapters, we call it Maintaining Energy and Enthusiasm. And it's really about changing the story of activism. Activism, we see, is where you're active for something bigger than you are. Uh, that when you're active for a purpose that's important to you, but when it's not a solo mission, when you've got others who are sh- uh, on a journey of shared purpose, it, it actually is, is one of the best recipes for a satisfying life. And so I'd see this, this is the new good life. You know, if you want to have a really good life, you want to have a satisfying life, Get involved in a story that means something to you. And what bigger story is there, really, than, you know, here we are at the beginning of the 21st century. And like many other adventure stories, begins from a place of a lot of very disturbing things happening. And some of them may even seem kind of hopeless and beyond our ability to respond. But what makes a great adventure story is not being put off by by difficult odds, that we rise to the occasion and we connect up with others who are also rising to the occasion and we begin this quest we begin this quest of looking for insights and allies and implements and practices that will help us give our very best response to the challenges that we face and when we really rise to the occasion and play our best part i'd say that's the way to have the best life possible I think that's a very positive note on which to end. Now, the book we've been discussing, Active Hope, um, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy, that's available widely, all the usual outlets. Um, But uh, to close off, would you care to tell the listeners anything about uh, your website, um, any other publications you have? I know you run workshops and give talks. Just anything you'd like to share, really. Yes, well, I've got a website at chrisjohnston.info, and that's Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-I-N-E dot I-N-F-O. Um, we've also set up a website at activehope.info, which gives information about the book. I run workshops. In fact, I've just recently moved to the north of Scotland, where I've set up a distant learning college called the Centre for Resilience, Happiness and Positive Change, really looking at how we train ourselves to get better at um, strengthening our resilience, living lives that are deeply satisfying through also engaging in positive change, finding our contribution to the world. And we've got a website at resiliencehappinesschange.com. So those are some things that I point people towards. And in fact, we're running a distance learning course linked to the book. It's an active hope training, and it begins at the beginning of November. And the idea is we get a group of people reading the book together, but also meeting once a week for a a weekly webinar where we we go into it in more detail. We discuss it and actually together use some of the exercises and practices um, that we describe really about how do we train ourselves to give our best response that we think of as our gift of active hope to the world situation we face. Well, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Well, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about the issues discussed today and Chris's work in general, you'll find links to both activehope.info and chrisjohnson.info on the program page for this show. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>